Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I was trying to decide whether I should stand here and risk collapsing in my cold state and you not seeing me because I'm so short for uh, uh, Anglo Anglophone lectins made for people more of Adam's stature than, than, than mine. Um, so I'll try to stand here and if I sort of start uh, flagging I might go and sit down over there. Um, I want to thank um, Emily and Linda for the uh, invitation to contribute to such an exciting event. It was a, a pleasure and an honour to receive it. Uh, I want to congratulate them for putting together such a, a fantastic day and, and Francois and the rest of the a team um, here at SRHE. Uh, and I want to thank you all for, for coming and participating in these discussions um, with us. And I hope you're having a day of thought-provoking, enriching and enjoyable discussions and that you continue to have it this afternoon. Um, so uh, the title of my, what my presentation is all about how um, up until now we've been talking about the international in quite um, sort of more general terms and I want to get us to think about all the different internationals that are contained within that notion of the international and I'm going to argue that not all internationals are uh, created uh, equally. Uh, we, we tend to talk of the international as a very important and as a very valuable thing in contemporary uh, universities. So we're always told we have to be international in outlook, world-leading, internationally renowned. We have to get international funding and be globally engaged. You know, just recently at my institution, the international office became the office for global engagement. So we have to be globally um, engaged. And, and, and so all of these are seem to be very good things, and not least because they yield quite significant uh, financial institutional benefits for the, um, for the universities that employ us and, and where we study. And, and we know that not just in the, in the UK, but in countries all over the world, mechanisms of research assessment, of recruitment, of uh, making decisions about promotions uh, are increasingly, increasingly centered on international activities. Um, as, and, and especially publications in international peer review journals as the sort of a, um, a most valued form of, of academic work. And, and so the international, I would say, becomes quite important, not just as you know a, a place that we can learn about or that we can gain from, but also as one of the main providers of the kinds of funding opportunities and publication opportunities that uh, individuals need to achieve to get to get hired and to get promoted and the institutions need to have in order to get the necessary ratings the right place on the rankings and the right amount of uh, a revenue um, and and uh, as as Emily mentioned you know you were talking about the the new funding priorities that meant that people who weren't interested in certain con contexts now became interested in those contexts so I'm been very interested in looking at how uh, this idea that places become valuable suddenly because uh, of, of, the, of, of, the, of the material, of the political of changes in the political economy of academic knowledge. And I want to think about that today. And this is not just about an issue, an issue of research. We know that the international is also valued because it's a seen as a very powerful um, revenue source in terms of getting students to come from all these other countries into the UK. And in fact, I was looking at some recent statistics, um, and um, and the higher education sector in the UK has uh, last year generated an estimated 14 billion of what are called export earnings. So there's this idea that higher education is a high growth export sector in the UK, and I think it tells us a lot about the ways in which we conceptualise knowledge and its relation to um, to the international and to the economy more broadly. So. 
The international is significant, it's valued, but then what internationals are most significant and most valued and how does that affect us and the, and the work uh, that we do? Um, Adam also and, and Lisa both talked also about another way in which the international is valued for those of us who are ethnographers. It's a method that has emerged very much as one of the main methods to find out about other cultures and other communities, often in quite problematic colonialist ways. So the international, I think, is also quite a powerful reference for ethnographers. I remember when I was training um, for my PhD, I, um, I did it at LSE in the Gender Institute, and I took an ethnography module in the anthropology department. And when I was asked um, what country I was going to focus on, and I said Portugal, they said, well, that's not... In international enough. It needs to be more exotic, you know, for it to be a proper ethnography, it needs to be more exotic. So, so there was also this very clear sense in many communities that ethnography derives some of its authenticity and some of its proper ethnographicness from being international and going to as far away as you possibly can um, in order to uh, produce this ethnographic work. Um, so, Trying to navigate these things as an ethnographer of uh, higher education look, uh, working across international boundaries, um, it's become very, very clear to me and to many others that um, contemporary academic knowledge is very much structured by very profound inequalities between regions, countries, continents, um, in terms of how they're seen to, 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 what value they're seen to have as producers of knowledge. So we, we operate within a global academic order where some countries, particularly the UK and the US, are seen as countries that produce better knowledge, more authoritative knowledge, more advanced knowledge, knowledge that is more easily exportable, that you can apply to different contexts. So you can take a theory that's developed about, you know, I don't know, some subculture in Birmingham, and that will be easily exportable to all over the world, and you can cite it in other countries to get a particular kind of academic legitimacy. Um, and, and, and we know that this is a global academic order where obviously uh, Anglophone uh, institutions and Anglophone uh, practices of scholarship, so universities, journals, uh, publishers, um, are very, very influential and shape the, the, uh, the careers and the lives and the research of people, not just in those Anglophone contexts, but also in other countries in the world where people will, people's work will be judged on the basis of whether it gets into these international Anglophone peer-reviewed uh, journals. So, and that's what I want to talk about today. So rather than focus on the findings of my ethnography, I want to talk about this kind of backstage negotiation that I went through all the time of, uh, of, of, of trying to negotiate with others what the status of my international was and how I related um, to, the, to the international as I encountered publishers and peer reviewers and examiners and, and research participants. But before I do that, I of course have to tell you a little bit about my um, ethnography. Um, it's the study I'm going to tell you about today was a study I started doing 10 years ago as a PhD student. I finished it five years ago, but I'm, I'm returned to it this year. I'll tell, I'll tell you how in a second. And it was a study of how uh, academics um, demarcate the boundaries of what counts as proper knowledge how those boundaries are negotiated on a day-to-day -day basis in, in spaces of academic work and sociability. And I was especially interested in how feminist scholarship and scholarship on gender gets positioned in relation to those boundaries. So is gender work, feminist work considered to be proper knowledge? In what conditions and how? And how is that boundary work done? And how does it affect the people that work in the field? 
So I do one feminist epistemology on Foucault and in work in science and technology studies. I did ethnography over a year in different sites of academic work and sociability. Um, a lot of it in events, uh, in lectures, in, in conferences, in seminars, in meetings of uh, uh, journal editorial boards, conference organizing committees, PhD vivas. I did a lot of observation in PhD vivas. Um, and, and a lot of uh, observation, planned or unplanned, in, in coffee breaks, in conferences, in the bathroom, uh, in conferences. Uh, so, um, most of it covert and sometimes deceptive, so we can talk about that in terms of the ethical issues that have been raised uh, before. Um, so I did that over a year, um, seven years ago, and then this year I decided to go back to the field and interview some of the participants I had interviewed at the time to see what things are looking like now, um, seven years later. And, um, and what I found, um, basically, in this project was um, that there is an increasing acceptance of um, work on gender and feminist work as proper knowledge, as that work has been identified by institutions as work that has value, so that can get published, can get funding, and can bring in revenue. But that greater acceptance coexists with a, an informal culture of corridor talk, where there's still a lot of sexist, heteronormative teasing, uh, uh, mocking, very, very uh, uh, pervasive and very toxic in, in many ways of uh, gender scholarship, feminist scholarship, and the people who do that scholarship. Um, and of course, what I should also say is that I did that ethnography in Portugal. Now, there's a reason why I said that last. I always say that last. I always talk about the study and the conclusions before I say that it was in Portugal. Um, and, and that's not a coincidence, because my own experience of talking about my work is that whenever I mention what international I focused on, people are always a little bit disappointed. Portugal. Why does it have to be Portugal? If you'd done that in the UK or in the US, it would be so much more interesting. And I so many times have noticed that the second I mention that, people just tune out slightly, they turn off. It's like, oh, it's, a, it's a, an area study. It's, you know, it's, about, it's a case study of that context. So, so it might be interesting, <laughs> but I guess, you know, Portugal is a bit backwards, you know, a bit... Um, Catholic, um, you know, does it really, can we really take these conclusions to, to understand what happens in the UK or in the US? And so in all of my, um, my interactions with <coughs> publishers, with peer reviewers, with people who are interested in my work in, and that I chat to in, in coffee breaks, that second where the, type, the, the international that it focuses on is revealed is always a moment of a disappointment, sometimes followed by, oh, I went to Portugal once. Uh, this one's very nice, or I went to the Algarve. But there is, but, but, but the, 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 um, the, the value of the work is downgraded in that moment, I can tell, sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly, by the fact that it's about Portugal. Um, and that's not surprising, considering that, as I say, the knowledge of these semi-peripheral or peripheral countries is not seen to be as exportable and as, as, as universally valued as knowledge that is produced in these Anglophone contexts that uh, act as the centre of the global um, academic system. So, um, so, so, so there's this sense that these are special cases of limited relevance and limited applicability and that have limited influence and consequence beyond their borders. 
And a lot of feminist scholars and scholars in other fields have, have uh, reflected on this. And I, I'm, I'm very taken, I always give this as an example, um, by a little game that Rosie Bredotti and Gabrielle Griffin um, encourage readers of a, a piece they wrote together uh, to play. So they say, I'm going to give you a game. I want you to think of uh, three or five feminist authors from these different countries. And they list countries, you know, like Slovenia and like Portugal. And the idea is most people who are not from those countries are not able to name five authors from those countries. But if you ask them to name five US feminist scholars or UK feminist scholars, people can not only name five, but a whole uh, great bigger reference list uh, of them with dozens and dozens of names. Um, and as I say, Portugal is one of the countries that they mention, and I found in my interviews with Portuguese um, uh, feminist scholars that they really struggle to get their work circulated internationally and taken as uh, a sort of a, an equal contribution into the feminist debates that they're trying to in intervene in. Um, it's a country, a sort of a, the semi-periphery of the global academic order, so it's not exotic enough to be an interesting exotic uh, ethnography, but it's also not central enough to just be unmarked as a place, right? It's a kind of semi-peripheral. And so my interviewees talked about this all the time because it has a massive impact on, on their own careers. Um, several interviews talked about how they're treated in quite patronizing ways by other feminists at international feminist conferences. Um, others spoke of established hierarchies between countries and how it affected the uh, reception of their work. So I've got here a quote from one interview with a senior feminist scholar. So this means women's gender feminist studies. It's a kind of umbrella use, I ter uh, umbrella term I use um, in, in, in the study. We can talk about that later if you want to know more. Um, but she talks about how power relations between countries are unequal, and so countries of the centre have other working conditions. They can make their journals, their articles, their work visible in ways that we can't match. And she talks about how this makes her feel that herself and her colleagues have to fight very hard because they have to pay attention to what's happening elsewhere and these stunning contributions that Anglophone scholars make. Um, but they find it much harder to, to affirm themselves because of language, but also because the research <laughs> and the case studies are seen as less relevant. And as I say, this really affects how people manage their careers. In this other quote, um, I was speaking to a, a junior scholar and she was talking about trying to get publications so that she could get a job and there aren't many or any jobs in academia in Portugal. That's one of the reasons why I'm here, not in Portugal at the moment, I'm Portuguese myself. Um, and, um, and she talks about how uh, she wanted to have more international publications and sent book proposals to loads of publishers. And she says about how reviewers would write, oh, it's a pity it's about Portugal because it's so interesting and it would be um, perfect if it were about another context, but Portugal, bleh. So, and it's something I felt as well. And sometimes reviewers are very open. They don't write bleh, but they do write very openly that wouldn't it be great if this was about another context that wasn't this particular one. Um, and so you've got a situation here where to be hired, you have to publish in these journals, but these journals don't think that your case studies or your context is that relevant and that valuable. So, um, but, but, and, and that means that having to conform to these hierarchies and to these sort of anglophone understandings of what internationals are valued 
becomes actually very much a matter of, um, of, of survival in, in an academic system where publications and certain kinds of journals are the way that you get assessed and what's going to define what salary you have and what kind of a survival opportunities you have. So, um, so what a lot of these participants would say to me, and what I experienced myself, is that you have to do a very delicate game of um, using the exoticness of your international, but diluting it so that it's not too exotic, it's not too distinctive. Um, and so, um, so you have to make your work interesting by diluting... Uh, the, uh, the Portuguese-ness of that work or by linking it to other case studies or analysing it through the reference point of debates in, in these Anglophone journals. And it's something that I've had to do myself um, many, many, many times um, uh, in, in, in my own work. I also got this reaction from some publishers that it's a pity it's about Portugal. Couldn't you just go and do some more ethnographies in some other countries so it wasn't just about Portugal? Oh yeah, that's what I'll do. I will just go and do some more ethnographies <laughs> in some random countries, um, and with the enormous amount of time I have, so I can then cut it all down to the eighty thousand words that you want the book to 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 to, to be. So that sounds like it's a very nice way of using um, uh, one's time, and and so there's this. Um, then uh, there's been this process, which I guess is a pragmatic process to use Adam's terms, of, um, of, of, of managing this, of managing just the right amount of this less valued international that you can have in your work in order to make it fly. And this happened in many ways. So, for example, it happened in how I uh, explained, justified my case study. And Adam spoke quite a little bit about how we justify things and how just saying it's a pragmatic choice is not very acceptable. And Emily was asking, are you going to smooth that over with a, a theory argument? Um, and, I, and I always felt expected and compelled to justify that Portugal was valuable. It's not because I'm Portuguese, it's just so interesting and so valuable. <laughs> and I want to show you actually um, how I've done this in my book that's going to come out in January. Uh, Ratledge accepted it in the end, although I must admit my book proposal wasn't entirely honest about uh, um, the nature of my case studies, but then they accepted it and there's nothing they can do about it. So a strategy for um, So as you can see, so, my book, so this is a bit from the introduction and it says that I do an ethnography of academia focusing primarily, though not exclusively, on Portugal. It is exclusively on Portugal. <laughs> there's, there's, some case, there's some examples from international conferences and things, but if you look at it, it really is just about Portugal. Um, and, then, and then I, so I launch into this description of how it's a productive case study in many ways, and I talk about uh, uh, its emergence, and then, and then I, as I wrote this, I thought, okay, I will put in austerity, because UK people like austerity, we have austerity. So I've actually cut that bit there, that's the bit that goes in there, but there was some austerity in it. And then, um, and then I say, okay, so this particular kind of austerity is specific to Portugal, but the story I tell here is certainly not just a local or a national one. No, it's not just about Portugal. Stay with me, people. Don't close the book just yet. Um, and, so, and so I link to stuff done in other countries, um, and I talk about obviously, what's happening in the US and the UK. So I said, actually, what's happening in the US and the UK affects what happens in Portugal. So please read my book so you can see yourself represented in this uh, uh, book, even though you're not Portuguese. So I talk about how uh, my located ethnography 
produces insight, not just about a specific country, but also about the countries it frames as benchmark, model, and aspiration. The UK and the US, which Routledge wanted more centralized in the book, but I didn't want to do the ethnography of those contexts. So there's this kind of, as you can see, oh, and I end by saying, oh, there's rare longitudinal insight um, about, a dramatic, uh, about transnational and yet local uh, transformation. So there's a very, so this is the smoothing over theoretically. Of, um, and, I, and, I, and I would agree that I would argue that this is right. I'm not lying. It, Portugal is an interesting case study to look at the links between the global, the local, and the transnational. But this is a performance mm -hmm. of making that it devalued international valuable and framed through, particularly the internationals that are seen to be more valuable and more exportable. So. I then removed from the book the bits that were more specifically about Portugal, so an analysis of the institutionalization of the field in Portugal, that's all gone. Um, and, um, and, and, and it's very interesting because then often what I would get in the peer reviews for the book proposal, and also sometimes what I get in peer reviews for journal articles, is that it's, so some people will say, oh, can we... Can we dilute the Portugal bit and just focus more on these m bigger issues. But then the other reviewer will say, well, for, uh, for me to understand this argument, I need to know more about Portugal. So tell me more about Portugal. And it's like, oh, I cannot both be more Portuguese and, and less Portuguese. And so there's, this is a very, very delicate balance. Another issue that um, is obviously also important is the issue of, of how we write and the language that we write. And I want to ask how many of you are not non, not native English speakers in the room? Yes, so uh, you will have no doubt already found that um, the, the traditions themselves and the styles of academic writing are completely different in different languages. It's not just different words, it's a very different epistemological system. Right, in terms of how we understand what counts as knowledge and how that knowledge is, is expressed. I was trained in a context, well, I suspect like some of you, um, where academic style is very much understood as um, uh, uh, a very um, ornate, elaborate literary style with very long sentences, you know, and uh, lots of adjectives. I love adjectives, you know, especially if they start with the same letter. And, you know, lots of Portuguese authors uh, and Spanish-speaking other authors do that as well. So um, there's an, an author, a British author, Karen Bennett, who, uh, who has written an article describing Portuguese academic style. And she says that um, when people write in Portuguese, they write long and mellifluous polysyllabic sentences. Words are often included for their rhythmic pattern or sound and for the shape they give to the phrase. Hence, we frequently find sets of two adjectives that are essentially synonyms and aren't really necessary, but they're there for the musicality of it. In English, where meaning rather than aesthetics gover governs lexical choices in academic writing style, such duplication is considered redundant. From the very first day, I wrote something as a PhD student, and I was told, oh, you're too wordy, too rhetorical. I, what, what do you need all this? Cut out all the adjectives. What's this doing here? And then I was also told um, the, 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 the argumentation style wasn't quite right, because I was used to writing it a little bit like a detective story, right? There is this, and then there is this, and then there is this, and at the end, here's the conclusion. And then uh, suddenly I kept being bombarded with a, a word I'd never even heard about before, signpost. <laughs> <laughs> and 
have to do some signposting. You have to signpost from the beginning. And so I thought, okay, I will do some signposting. And then I was told, it's too much signposting. Now you have to get rid of all the signposting. You have to give some of it away, but you can't give too much of it away. And what was interesting is, you know, I was supervised and, and, and trained as a PhD student um, by a Foucauldian feminist in quite a post-structuralist feminist department. And, 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 and yet the discussion wasn't, you know, about the social constructedness of any of this. It was, this is good academic writing. I said, well, I, I, I think we can have a whole long Foucauldian discussion about, you know, the categories that you're using. But it was very much framed as what you're writing is not good, makes no sense, or it's too much or now it's too little, so signposting, signposting, signposting. And I've now become that person as well with my students, which is uh, very sad. Um, so, so if you're a non-native speaker, then you're also working on making your language, as I say, you know, it, it, original enough, but not so much that it strays outside the comfort zone of what an Anglophone audience finds legible and intelligible in very uh, literal ways. So, um, but, but managing all these things, and Emily, can you tell me how much time? Five minutes. Five minutes. Managing all these things is not something that um, I do just as I face uh, uh, audiences internationally. It's something that also shaped how things occurred in, in my fieldwork in Portugal. So one of the things I analyze um, in, 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 my, in my book is how um, feminist scholars in, in, in Portugal uh, find that Portuguese scholars can be invested with the status of the international if they go abroad, if they have an inst uh, a foreign affiliation. So they talk about how people like me uh, need to leave, we need to spend some time in the US and the UK publishing foreign journals, and then when we go back to our own countries, we're more valuable and we are more credible, even as feminists that you wouldn't otherwise take seriously, because we carry this uh, value of the international with us in our bodies and in our names and in our institutional affiliations. This other quote here talks about how um, we can be these kinds of people, of, of, of uh, of scholars abroad can be very important because a foreign affiliation has more value than any affiliation you could get in Portugal. And this was very, very important for how the status of gender studies was managed in Portugal. Linking to the international <coughs> was a crucial way of getting local recognition for work that was otherwise not taken seriously. And so people would talk, for example, about how actually they found that um, it was very good to refer to the names of UK and US feminist scholars when they try to put in an application, for example, to create an, a degree program in gender studies. So this person here says, well, I use these people's names to, to, to act as a guarantee, a witness. I wrote in the proposal that these highly qualified people had said that they would write something in support of us. But, and this was for an administration that was quite resistant to a gender studies program. And she says, well, they, this, these people didn't really have to write anything because it was powerful enough to mention what universities and countries they were from. They would tell me all the time that they had to make sure they always invited UK and US scholars to conferences because then the, uh, uh, the administrators, the managers of the university would come to the conferences to, to say hello to the distinguished UK, US person. Thank you for coming to our country. We are so appreciative. And so they would have to listen to feminist stuff in the process. So there was this very interesting use of these bodies as something that could authorize what was happening uh, locally. So I think 
it's important to, to do something that many femi feminist scholars have done, which is to look at the constraining effects of Anglophone hegemony. We know it skews our collective canons. We know it can stifle local knowledge production because it has to be done from the perspective of what's in important in Anglophone debates. We know it can um, make people's career progression very hard, but we also know that this higher status of the UK and the US can be very valuable for local negotiations and can open doors in quite significant ways for feminist scholars in the periphery or semi-periphery as they negotiate the status uh, uh, of their work. So to wrap up, what I would say then is that we, we, we've got a situation here where um, um, that where for those of us who are who are doing work across international boundaries, we've got this very weird situation of both being um, uh, benefiting from these hegemonies uh, and and also being constrained by them and being critical of them and reproducing them as we do our thing. And in fact, you can you can argue that me, you know, the the, the uh, several, several of my of my participants said, oh, it's so great that you're doing this ethnography while working at LSE, because now you're going to go to the UK and tell all the UK feminist scholars about what Portuguese scholars do, and you can uh, sensitize them to the importance of the work that we do. So they would consider what I'm doing here now as part of that negotiation of the lower status of Portugal, which is a bit silly because they're academics and their own right. They don't need me to come and tell you that Portugal is important, but but we are already always implicated in these kinds of um, of hierarchies that we're uh, working within. So, so I think this just, this raises several important questions for us. I think it means that we have to consider uh, what gets silenced by these global inequalities, and a lot gets silenced, and a lot gets constrained but also recognize what becomes possible because of these inequalities and how they generate knowledge. This has generated knowledge for me. I've had to go and think about the link between Portugal and the UK and the US, and I've generated knowledge as a result. So it didn't just stifle my knowledge production, it raised new questions for me to, to think about. But whether they're generative or not, I, I would argue that there are lots of very problematic assumptions about which internationals are valuable and interesting to, to, to read. Uh, and these structure our thinking, our writing, and our careers in profound ways. If anything, I would like you to go out and read some work by some Portuguese scholars or some scholars that you might not otherwise think about. But most importantly, I would, I would like you to reflect explicitly and also collectively about how these assumptions shape your interaction with people and your interaction uh, with their work. I think that's a way of better resisting and transforming these global inequalities. Um, I also, I, I, I think there is no way in which we can do international ethnographies without looking at the value of the international and how we're shaping it. And I hope this conversation that we're having today and the work that you continue to do contributes to that critical reflexive analysis. Thank you very much.